Support for the Blueprint Podcast comes from the SANS Institute. Are you a new Blue Team member or a SOC analyst looking to make sense of the vast variety of data that you see on a day-to-day basis? Are you working in a SOC that's plagued with alerts that are constantly bothering you with false positives or repetitive action? If so, I know that pain. I remember being an analyst and walking into the SOC and thinking everything was going to be great and then realizing, oh, we have some serious problems here. I've dealt with those problems over the course of my long career, and the results of what I've learned have been summarized in my brand new course, SEC 450 Blue Team Fundamentals. If you're a new SOC analyst looking to get a grapple on all of the network and host data that you interact with, improve your analysis technique, learn how to reverse engineer malicious file types that you commonly see in phishing or downloaded from the internet, or just get rid of those pain points from the average SOC, like repetitive actions, drowning in tickets, alert fatigue, SEC 450 is the class for you. Check this course out at sansurl.com slash 450. Hope to see you in class. This is the Blueprint Podcast, bringing you the latest in cyber defense and security operations from top blue team leaders. Blueprint is brought to you by the SANS Institute and is hosted by SANS certified instructor, John Hubbard. And now, here's your host, John Hubbard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Blueprint Podcast. On this week's episode, we have Ryan Chapman. We are going to be discussing the very, very interesting topic of malware. If you've ever wondered how to reverse engineer malware or why you might want to do so, we cover that and so much more on this week's episode. So today in the podcast, we have Ryan Chapman, a SANS instructor, Blue Team course author, and malware specialist. I'm super excited to have Ryan on the show today. Um, we met a couple of years ago. I think it was at a SIM summit, if that's correct. Yeah, that was it. SANS Scottsdale. Yep. Yeah. And I uh, uh, met Ryan before he got involved in SANS officially. Since then, been fortunate enough to see you at a number of events, hang around, pick up some malware knowledge along the way. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast and, and one of the, the things I like about uh, Ryan, for the, for the listeners that aren't familiar with him, is he brings this intense energy and, and knowledge to the topic of malware. And if you've ever seen any of his discussions or, or talks, uh, you, you know what I'm talking about. So I was hoping we could uh, have some of that energy come through and, and enlighten everyone on a topic today that I think is really scary for a lot of people that are considering getting into it, which is malware reverse engineering and, and kind of malware in general. Uh, so thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Ryan. To start us off, let's hear a little bit about you, what kind of brought you into the world of blue teaming and malware analysis specifically. Yeah, heck yeah. First off, thank you very much for having me. I don't think enthusiasm is going to be difficult. <laughs> so <laughs> no problem so. there, my man. You know, I got an early start, a very early start into computing. Uh, I had a TI-85 Texas Instruments calculator, you know, back in junior high. And I realized that the assembly-based games were far better, oh, baby, than the basic games. And so I took a concurrent enrollment class at the local college as soon as I hit ninth grade to learn programming. And so I actually took an assembly course. And in doing that, I started developing even more of a fondness for just computers in general. Throughout high school, I lived on my computer. I would uh, work out after school with the jocks. And then as soon as they'd go home, it was until midnight or later, just sitting up. You know, I was in the what we call the wares scene back then, right? Thinking I was cool, you know. <laughs> but what really got to me in that era was, how are these people able to do all this? You know, when I was living on IRC and Hotline, I don't know if you remember Hotline. That was the blast back in the day. <laughs> when I lived in those environments, it really, I started realizing like, People are putting these things together, these release groups, the courier groups, the way that they conduct themselves. How do they do all this? So I started following like crack me's and I started learning how to use soft ice, which at the time in the Windows 9X days was a kernel level debugger. And I just learned stupid stuff, really. But at the same time, it, I started to, it really sparked a passion. Like, hey, this is stuff that even I can do, right? It's, it's very interesting. So I uh, ended up going to school. I got into, uh, I was a technical trainer, a full-time technical trainer while I was in school. So I was running my mouth professionally for six years. And while doing that, you know, towards the end of my graduate degree, I had a fella give me a call and he's a great dude. I'll throw his name, Johnny. I love this guy, but he was calling and it's funny because really he was bragging. He was bragging about his new job and he was like, yeah, it's a security operations center and it's phenomenal. It's like right out of the movies or it's like I'm reading a book. Our day-to-day workflow is just zany. And I was like, 
Really? <laughs> so uh, needless to say, a couple weeks after that, I was onboarded and I worked in my first sock. So working in a sock environment, it was just phenomenal. I tried to dabble in each and every little thing I could possibly do. Working on a blue team, you see malware all the time, right? You see signs of malware, artifacts of malware. You see all these things. And I had that, which I'm sure many of your listeners have now, right? They're looking at these artifacts and these things going, how do I analyze these? Like, I don't like passing these off. You know, if you have a malware team or a third party that you hand things off to, that's an icky feeling. And you're like, here, can you tell me what this does? <laughs> I'm like, no, I want to do that. So I started pulling things apart. I started with malicious documents or maldocs, as everyone calls them now. I'll get into more of that at some point, I'm sure. But, you know, I took the GRIM, the, uh, well, excuse me, I took Forensic 610 and it achieved the GRIM certification back in 2014. And it was just because I, I had malware. It was pervasive. It was all around me. You know, it was ubiquitous. It was all over the place. And I wanted to know more and more and more about it. So the more that I worked in the sock, the more that I would, you know, people would get malware and I would ask them just like, can I see that? Like, let me do it. Let me help you with that. And I would just, you know, I pretend like I knew how to do it. And then I'd learn how to do it. <laughs> so, yeah, I had no idea what I was looking at for most of it. But we worked together. And as a team, we grew our sock into more of a malware and threat until oriented unit just because we were super nosy. So I was at that organization for seven years and for two and a half or so, I was on the SOC. Then I moved over to the CERT. On the CERT, I actually moved to the network security monitoring sub team first. And that was because they had an opening there first. And I looked at it and thought, well, I know Defer and I know malware and I know threat Intel. I don't know, not like I do now, of course, but still, I was familiar with them and I dabbled with them. I don't know anything about running Splunk. I don't know anything about running an infrastructure. So I took that opportunity. While being there, I eventually moved into a defer role specifically, which is obviously where I fit better. And that experience, all those things combined and together allow me to have a far more holistic picture of dealing with malware, you know? So when I, I, I'm pretty sure that you, I have you to thank actually for getting my name at some point into the sand circles based on that, that meeting in Scottsdale. And I recall the first uh, reaching out on the Sands part was, hey, let's, you know, we're going to bring you on to the blue team if you're interested. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, Sims and yeah. And then forensics stole me away. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I love Mauer. And then you know, the rest is history. So for me, it was at a young age, I was obsessed with computers, obsessed with computing devices. You know, I was in advanced placement courses in senior year and I was failing out because I was busy programming my TI-85 calculator. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, yep, I was yep. programming the calculator for the other people, and I didn't care about you know, <laughs> physics course. I just wanted to, you know, get the calculator to do what I wanted, and that really evolved, you know, into what we really deal with so much in incident response and dealing with these threat actors. In some way, shape, or form, often deals with with malicious software, right? Either how they're getting in, the initial infection vector when they're moving around live, like all the above, you know, there are tools and resources. And so I just really wanted to understand that better. So for the past year and a half, I moved over after seven years in that sock cert environment, I moved to silence, which is now BlackBerry. So our security services, formerly professional services, consulting group, we're consulting, you know, uh, just same as your crowd strikes and fire eyes. We get cases each and every day. They come in a lot of ransomware stuff. And I've been talking a lot about ransomware these days. Get into all that. I'll digress for now. But, you know, in our role, we actually have a threat research slash malware team. My job specifically, if I come across a legitimate malware sample, is to pass it to them. But that harkens back to what I was just talking about, right? I'm like, I don't want to just give it to them. Funny story, Anuj Sony, a fantastic human, he is a co-author of Forensic 610, and he is on our threat research team. So day in, day out, he deals with malware. That's his job, right? For me, I come across it all day long. And as time allows, I rip it apart, you know? So I like to, you know, be in the trenches in that IR realm. But I also love the fact that we constantly find new stuff. And so, yeah, that's where I am now. I'm loving consulting, absolutely adore it, especially being in all these different environments, seeing all these different types of attacks and learning how and teaching others how to, to thwart this stuff. You know, it's like, hey, this is silly. Let's just get rid of this. It sounds like we have kind of a, a pretty parallel path. Maybe I wasn't aware of. But yeah, I mean, I was, of course, 
as anyone, I think, back in the day, into the uh, the TI-83, 85, 86. I think I had an 86. Yeah. The uh, calculator games in math class, I had like a Mario clone and all that kind of stuff. And I was oh, like, yeah. oh, I programmed this, right? And doing all that kind of stuff instead of learning like I should have been and then going home and playing with computers. And also in 2014, I also did the Grim, which is kind of what brought me into this world as well. That was my first science course I ever took. And so I was like, oh, this is awesome, right? Came back. I'm like, I got some malware superpowers now. This is super cool. So, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of experience, I think we definitely share on that. In your consulting career now, what are you seeing as like some of the more prominent trends and in, in stuff that's popping up now uh, in terms of, I guess, the goals of the malware and styles and, and things like that? So, number one, right off the bat, and I've been doing a, I actually have a SANS webinar that just got scheduled for like a week or two from today. I, apparently, I better, I better get on it. <laughs> human, <laughs> human-operated ransomware is the term. I believe Microsoft coined that. So, I've been referring to it as HORA, H-O-R-A. It's not a great acronym, but ransomware groups like Maze and Ryuk and derivatives of them and teams that are now joining up with them, like the Gan Crab folks who are joined up now officially to the maze cartel, as they call themselves. Like, that's not ominous, right? That is so, so common. It's ridiculous. We're dealing with it day in and day out. But whether it's in those attacks or whether it's in attacks that just, you know, whatever the wide net approaches and phishing, someone clicks on something silly and then something dumb happens, we're finding so much that we have the common info stealers or the banking Trojans, as they were originally known, so you have Imitet and TrickBot uh, and QuackBot or QBot, if you want to call it that, or IceID, those types of things. We're seeing those all over the place. And then on top of that, we're also seeing stuff that you download from GitHub or could easily do so right now. We see so much open source malware and, and the Windows environment, which is most of the cases we get in because, well, duh, <laughs> just in general, you know, uh, we see so much PowerShell, so much malicious PowerShell. It, you know, was the, the new thing in 2015, 16. And then ever since then, it's just been so consistent. So I find that I'm ripping apart malicious PowerShell, deobfuscating as we like to call it, probably like once a day, if not multiple times a week. And I'm finding that it's becoming easier and easier for us. When we come into an IR, the BlackBerry team, we have, you know, our attitude is more like, yeah, we're going to find it. Like, don't worry. But it's not just because, hey, we think we're good, but it's because we also know we're seeing the same thing over and over and over. And once the attackers are getting in, and they're also leveraging, of course, CVEs related to network appliances, you know, I'll try not to throw out some of the big names, but if you name your three biggest, most important network appliances or remote enablement uh, without giving away (laughs) names, Uh, if you name them in the past six to 12 months, how many CVEs have they had? And we are seeing those taken advantage of for um, initial entry. And then, you know, we're seeing just like Mimi cats in an environment. Um, It's so, so common to see, you know, process hacker and Mimi cats like over and over and over and over. As far as the malware realm in general, we're seeing a lot of repetition over the past two or three years. There's not a ton of evolution. And while there is, of course, and I have some to speak to, I, we just ran across one yesterday. I was like, this is awesome. And it's perfect to talk about. But we're seeing a lot of that repetition. So there are already so many articles out there. There are already so many training videos or whatever, or dissections, if you will, or technical deep dives, as we like to call them, right? Because that just sounds cool. On all these things, Imitet and TrickBot, for example. And then right after those are deployed, we see Cobalt Strike so often, so often. And on the blue team, right? How often do you see Cobalt Strike? All the time, right? We see it with everything, everything. I don't know a percentage. You know, I can make one up, but that's who cares about that. So we see the same tools over and over and over. And while there may be, of course, adjustments and changes to maybe the initial vector or maybe one of their password dumping methodologies or what have you, we still end up seeing very, very similar payloads within environments. And for me, it's actually, it gets a bit boring, if you will, because from the malware analyst side, you identify a new family or an evolution of a family, right? And it gets named based on typically just indicators or strings in the darn malware. You're like, oh, this is divergent, which I want to talk about later coming up. So we're going to call it divergent, you know? And when you start seeing them over and over as a malware analyst, you build or use a framework that is able to chop that up and is familiar with it. 
but then you're kind of waiting for the next thing. You know, like what's that's that's the new thing. Like, what are we going to have some more fun here? So, and we're also seeing a lot more evolutions of previous families than we did in the past. So, for example, I actually had a case, and this is awesome, right? This is like why I love IR. One of the things, and in the case, we found this ransomware, and it looked very, very similar to a previous ransomware called Buran. At least I'm calling it. I don't know how to pronounce it officially, but B U R A N. But this was different. And long story short, it ended up being an evolution of that. It's called Zeppelin. You know, the BlackBerry Threat Vector did a whole article on it. And I was like, dude, that is cool, man. Working on the blue team side, I ran into it by mistake, right? I wasn't hunting for the client today. We got hit with this. And I said, hey, that sucks. (laughs) And then we looked at it and it was like, cool. And then we were like, what's the differences? And then you learn to, you know, identify what's been changed and so on and so forth. And that's what really keeps, you know, fuels my passion is that evolution. So yeah, that's what we're seeing a lot of. We'll be back after a quick break. If you're enjoying this episode, then you're undoubtedly interested in building the strongest security operations team that you can. For those who want to go even deeper, did you know that SANS has not one, but two courses that cover security operations centers as well? For the leaders, managers, and directors out there, my co-author Mark Orlando and I offer 551, Building and Leading Security Operations Centers. This course covers building your team, your physical and virtual workspace, getting the right data into your tools, and then focusing on security priorities through everyday execution of important security tasks and building the best SOC team possible. For the technical practitioners out there, my course SEC 450, Blue Team Fundamentals, Security Operations and Analysis, is designed to cover everything you need to jump in being the best SOC analyst that you can be. We cover important data types, SOC tools, security logs, malware, analysis technique, automation, and much, much more. In addition, if you want to prove you can deliver the best on any security team, both courses have an accompanying certification available from GIAC. That's the GSOM for 551 and the GSOC for 450. Check out both courses and free demos available on the SANS website. You can get registered today for an in-person course at one of our many events, or go to On Demand and take either class anywhere at your own pace. Thanks for listening. It's interesting you see, like, there's not a whole, well, in, in terms of the families that you see, like you're kind of seeing a lot of repetitive families of the same types of malware, but those families themselves are evolving slowly. For people who are wanting to get into this and, and are as excited about doing this, I think we've probably made it clear that the benefits of doing so, right? We all know we're going to be seeing this forevermore, right? There's no end to this. What are like some good first steps that someone can take to start to learn these different families and start to like get familiar with the tools and such to start walking down this path? Yes, I personally believe that of the various realms of digital forensics and incident response, right, of overall deeper, as we call it, I think that malware analysis has the perceived highest steep in terms of learning curve. Mm -hmm. And the reason I believe that is because a lot of times what people see are folks in a debugger or in a disassembler. You know, they, they see IDA or they see Ghidra or X64 DVG debug, right? And they're like, oh, what is all that, right? Like, what's a register? Like, well, I don't know. What's an EAX? I, what's, so what's all this? However, it's far more accessible, far more accessible than that. So the go-to that I always recommend is practical malware analysis, a textbook that most people are familiar with and have heard about. The PMA, you know, it was my Bible for many years. I absolutely adore it. And it was published in 2012. Man, that's eight years ago, right? That's a while ago, but it is still so relevant. It's a phenomenal read. So I really love PMA. There's a fellow named Sam Bone. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Sam. Uh, He teaches out of the San Francisco City College. And he is another fantastic human being. I've gushed over him. I even have a a YouTube video where I just talk about his website and how cool it is. (laughs) Like, I'm a bit obsessed. I can't wait for him to hear this and be like, again, <laughs> again, with this? this guy's weird. But he has a practical malware analysis based course on his website, samsclass.info. And by the way, along with literally hundreds of other classes that are completely free, are completely documented, including the labs and including in the past couple of years, YouTube videos for all of his various sessions. But anyway, I'll digress on my love for Sam. In his class, he basically gives you a structure and labs to follow. And it's like, hey, you know, you read this part of the book and then you come do this. Then you go read this part of the book and then you go to this. That is my number one. I always tell people, you know, do that. That is your first step. 
I would prefer that people have some type of introduction to malware in some way, shape, or form via PMA, just because I just love the design and how well it's written. Of course, I would be remiss not to say, well, duh, John, you come take Forensic 610 with us. <laughs> like, <laughs> duh. But, you know, of course, accessibility-wise, you know, course fees and such as they are, that may not be a, the easiest method to dip your toe, so to say. So PMA, I think, is phenomenal. And there are a number of resources that you can use to set up a malware analysis environment, which I assume will be a pivot question very soon for us. And while setting that up, one of the best things to do, I find, is to essentially go through the listing of tools as you're installing them, identify and categorize, you know, what types of threats do these deal with? Are these for malicious documents? In other words, a Word file, an Excel file, which, by the way, I forgot to mention, we see those constantly, oftentimes as an infection vector via phishing. It's probably will always be. I don't know when that will change. (laughs) But, you know, you take these, these tools, put them into categories and then go, okay, as a blue teamer, when do I see these things? You know, and if I have an example, I run across you know, just responding to an email threat, then how do I rip it apart? And rather than rip it apart, just start very, very slow and just open one of these tools and just throw your file at it and see like, what is this? You know, having a foundation of something like PMA, or especially going through a more structured training kind of style, especially if it's Forensic 610, every time we close 610, in fact, usually every day of the course, people are already asking like, whoa, how are we going to keep this up? How do we continue to go forward? My answer to that is that in a blue team environment, you're constantly coming up against these random different threats whether they be the exploit kits of yesteryear. I say of yesteryear, they're still common. Like you still see exploit kits, but I mean, you know, it's not the same yeah, at all. Not, not anything yeah, like it used to Not be. even close, <laughs> yeah. So when you, whether it's an exploit kit or a mal document or literally just a, a .exe, you know, a portable executable in Windows, whatever it is, just to take that, set it aside if you don't even have hours at work to deal with it. Or if you have research hours that you use that to try to analyze these things. So yeah, my stepping stones for myself literally was PMA and Grim. I mean, that's how I did it. And I love that resource. There are other great resources out there. You know, I have some courses on Pluralsight.com and there are some great guys. Uh, Tyler Hudek was over with the Trusted Tech Group. He's phenomenal. And he has some malware courses on there. OA Labs has some f- fantastic stuff on YouTube, although it's a little more on the advanced side. It's not so much a uh, dip your toe type of situation, but they have some great content there. So there are a lot of places to go to see malware being broken down. But I find that the initial, the the first foundational type of stuff is not as commonly covered. And I see it more as you basically have your textbooks and I have a a shelf full of them. I just prefer PMA as my number, even though it's old, as my number one. But then beyond that, you know, when you go to watch things on YouTube, it's like, here's a complete breakdown of Imitet, you know, in Ida the whole time. And you're like, whoa, whoa, dude. <laughs> so I, I think it's important to start with a solid foundation like the PMA book. I, I don't get any proceeds for this, by the way, or Royal for mentioning the name. I, I've said like 10 times already. I just love it. Yeah, no, that's that's one of the books I always uh, recommend as well. And, uh, you know, same exact progression as you. Like I read that book. I was like, this is super cool. I think I can actually do this. Took the class and that kind of set me off. One of the things I noticed, and I still kind of tell this to students all the time when I'm, when I'm teaching 450, and I also have some labs on this, is like most of the stuff you will do, at least in my experience, like every day is taking apart a malicious document, like finding the link inside a PDF, right? Is there a malicious macro in this thing? Is there an embedded object that's a file that you're supposed to double click? Whatever it is. There are certain, the probably like five tasks that like 90% of what you will encounter day to day will fall into. And those things aren't really that hard to do. Like you run some kind of script that extracts the macro. You run some kind of tool that takes apart the PDF and tells you, hey, look, there's a link in this. And like, you don't have to open it. You don't have to do any of that kind of stuff. Those are the things that I often point people towards and say like, don't worry about disassembly, you know, decompilation and all that. Yeah, like you can do most of what you need to do day to day on that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I listed some there. there, What are the things that you think are like the key, if you were going to learn the most value in the littlest amount of time or the littlest amount of skills? Like what's the the 80-20, you know, of malware analysis for getting started for the most value in the shortest amount of time? For me, I always push malicious documents. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
many reasons. One of the primary reasons being that my initial foray into hands-on security was in a sock, right? And we constantly are sent from users like, what's this? And we're like, that's bad. Don't click that. <laughs> that sucks. Like, well, why is it stuck? Well, let's go find out. So I uh, absolutely recommend learning how to deal with malicious documents to the point where this previous in-person DEF CON, yep. I got to run my first DEF CON workshop and I ran a, a four-hour workshop. I have it on GitHub, actually. It's a step-by-step PDF. So I have a couple workshops on GitHub. The one that's on there for the care, I call them carrier files as opposed to maldocs a lot personally. So it's called carrier file workshop. But when you start pulling those apart and realizing these are not really difficult to analyze. Going back to your question on what are we seeing, we're seeing so much of the same type of malicious documents, a .doc file, .docx, you know, what have you, that just has malicious VBA. The levels of, of obfuscation, of course, can differ. But once you learn to analyze it and to step through the debugger in Microsoft's own VBA editor, you know, I do 99% of my Word document analysis in Word, I literally double-click the thing. I Alt F11 to open the developer, uh, the VBA editor, and I just step through the, the darn thing. That's right. That's right. I do most of it. You know, yep. ripping those things apart becomes a lot easier when you start to understand their structures. So I recommend that folks who are in, for example, a blue team environment or especially a SOC environment, that you grab those carrier files, those maldocs, and you start to just Google around, do some research on how to analyze them. You know, uh, whether you're looking at my workshop, that big, long PDF, you know, or whether you go with whatever resource, it is really, really eye-opening to see, for example, the structure of a PDF. Many people don't realize that they are primarily ASCII-based, that they are textual, that you can take a PDF, drop it onto a text editor, hopefully within a secure environment in general, by the way, <laughs> uh, more on that coming up, but, and just be able to see where the objects are. And then once you start realizing how the trailer and the cross-reference table point to the root object, the root object literally has a number, often object one, not always, you know, one, zero object. Okay. And uh, what does that include? Well, it points to the pages in the document. How does it do that? Well, it literally says, to find pages, slash pages, and then go to this object. You know, object 50R, R means reference the object. Go to, no, go to number five. Pages are in there. You know, and then uh, the streams where the binary data may be included, that is, it may be like, oh, it's all, it's all hexy and crazy. It uses very, very common. There's 15 or so uh, decoders and encoders, but often it's the same two or three. And you'll learn how to decode those and how to utilize those. And there are many tools you can just use. PDF Stream Dumper, for example. Take a PDF, drop it on there, and go just Google PDF Stream Dumper Analysis, right? PDF File Format. And you'll realize that within just a couple hours of research, you'll have a really good idea of what PDFs are, are all about and usually how they're weaponized, which these days, as you mentioned, is usually just a URL. You know, that's the quote-unquote weaponization. Of course, JavaScript can be in a PDF, so you'll learn that too. But you get the idea. The idea is that when you have these documents that we come across all the time that are malicious, it may seem like, I don't know anything about programming. I can't deal with that encoded VBA. Yeah, you can. It's really not hard. The basics of debugging, learning how to literally set a breakpoint on the first thing that happens and then just start hitting step into, step into, step into... And just trying to realize like, oh, okay, these variables are filled out as it's running in runtime. And I have no idea. It's super obfuscated. The variable names are gobble 572. Like, I don't know what that is, right? Who cares? What does Microsoft's VBA editor tell you the value is in that variable right now? And you're like, oh, it's uh, 17. I'm like, okay, keep going. <laughs> it's really not that hard. <laughs> so I, I always like to start with Maldocs. So... When it comes to like, you mentioned opening them in Word, right? Obviously, you're doing this in a secure environment. People who want to create this kind of a thing so that they can download these and, and kind of step through a, a debugger and, and all that kind of stuff. Like, what's the actual setup that you would typically use for bringing a malicious file into what I assume you're going to say a virtual machine and then uh, making sure that there's like no reasonable worry that it's going to escape the virtual machine and you know like what, what are the precautions you take what's the vm setup you use yes so i was i was waiting for this part because i love showing <laughs> folks that it's so easy to actually get this set up so first off 
foundationally, I prefer to do any and all malware analysis on a Macintosh computer. And there are many reasons to that, aside from the fact that the terminal and having GNU-based tools at your fingertip, and I don't like Windows subsystem or Linux, and permissions are a, a blunder in that thing. Aside from all that, when you're moving malware between VMs, they're going to hit your host. And if your host is a Windows machine, if your host is a Macintosh machine, I mean, obviously, it's your risk factor is far lower. Right. On top of that, I have officially a secondary Macintosh laptop that is just for malware analysis. Now, many people cannot go out and buy a secondary or a tertiary. I just wanted to use that word. I like that word. <laughs> I threw it in for no reason other than to hear me say it. I love that word. A third laptop or computing device just for malware. But if you have older laptops, even older Windows laptops, cool, do it on there. You want to avoid as best as possible infecting your personal machines that are daily drivers, if you will, your gaming rigs or something, right? Let alone your work computer. Like, don't be the right. infection vector. <laughs> How'd this happen? Well, I was analyzing this thing, right? <laughs> and then I double-clicked it. Yeah, no good. So that's first and foremost. I love doing things on a Mac. Um, and on top of that, I recommend at least one Windows and at least one Linux virtual machine for malware analysis. The Linux side is made easy by Lenny Zeltzer and a couple other folks who are working on the Remnux distribution. So Remnux, R-E-M-N-U-X dot org. It stands for Reverse Engineering Malware Nux, like, you know, Linux. So it is a phenomenal distribution. All kinds of amazing tools already baked in. Newer version just came out after a a number of years with a primary, you know, uh, point version. So really great utility. Can't recommend it more. On the Windows side, I recommend having at least one Windows 10 enterprise machine. Now, that is because most of the malware that we're going to be dealing with, in my realm at least, is going to run within an enterprise environment, right? So I literally want Windows 10 enterprise. Now, all you really need is Windows 7 or Windows 10. I also recommend having multiple versions of Windows. At least a 10 or a 7 would be very, very handy. But in order to get a Windows VM, it may be easier than most people realize. First off, if you have access to an MSDN license, well then, duh, just grab a key, you know, and you can literally download Windows 10 or 7 from Microsoft. I'm not sure if folks are aware of that. It's Windows 10 ISO Microsoft, and it takes you right to the link, the legitimate link to download it, right? Make, make sure it's at Microsoft.com, by the way, <laughs> I should say. I come pre-infected, you can analyze that. <laughs> yeah, right? So right there, you, you have a, a base machine. On top of that, again, back to Lenny Zeltzer, if folks are not aware of Lenny, he is the primary author of Forensic 610. So he and Anuj are the, the two uh, concurrent developers right now for the course and maintainers. Lenny has a great article. It is called How to Get and Set Up a Free Windows VM malware analysis. I can't get more, more, more direct than that, right? I'll write it straight <laughs> out to you. And in his article, which is just on his website, zeltzer.com, he shows you like, hey, you want to get a virtual machine. And if you don't have access to a license, Microsoft provides test virtual machines. And many folks are aware of this because, you know, we can get VMs to do fun stuff with. So he gives you exact directions here on how to do it and how to choose which version you want and such. They do have a 90-day limitation technically, I'll leave it at that. So when you have the Windows VM, you are then going to need to fill it with tools. Now, Remnux comes jam-packed with a bunch of malware analysis tools. That's the purpose of the distribution. By having a base Windows 10 install, basically what I recommend to everyone is that you grab the Flare VM. So FireEye, which is a competitor of ours in terms of consulting, but man, do they have a solid outward-facing public presence reverse engineering team. The FireEye Labs Advanced Reverse Engineering Team, or Flare, they have a virtual machine they've put together. At least, they call it a virtual machine, but in reality, it is a a bunch of tools that are installed via a PowerShell script, is is what it is. So you set up your new Windows VM, you know, a brand new one, typically go with a brand new one. Make sure the regular Windows updates are there, and then just go check out the Flare VM, which is on GitHub. It's a PowerShell script. It downloads and installs. I, I don't have an exact count, but if you were to ask me the top three tools to analyze the following types of malware and you gave me Java and you gave me PEs or whatever, this thing has it already. It comes with tools to mess around with those. You know, So I highly recommend just a Windows 10 Pro or Enterprise, throw Flare VM on top of it, and then just start playing around. 
And one of the things that I really like about the Flare VM, aside from there, it's the, I'm not going to say it's the only of its kind for sure, because it's not, but it's the by far best known of its kind. But on their GitHub page, they have a section, an anchor to installed tools, right? The big name tools that are on here. And they are categorized. So earlier I was referring to categorizing the tools on and what they do for you, right? And keeping a running list so that you know, oh, hey, look, I just got an APK file. You know, down the line, you may get into Android reversing. And you're like, oh, what tool do I even use for this, right? Well, they have them listed right here. There's two tools they have listed, right? So for the various document types that you get, you can even look here in the Flare VM and go, oh, okay, well, I should, I should probably try one of these. You know, and you just open it up and then just get hands-on, get handsy and just try to see what's up. The, under Office, for example, they have like OLE dump and Office Mal Scanner. Like, yeah, those are tools we go to all the time. So I, uh, I really like the Flare VM on top of a Windows 10 with Remnux on the side, just for starters. So... One of the things that I've heard when I describe this stuff sometimes is, you know, yeah, I can install all this malware and do all this kind of thing, but like, don't I pay a vendor to do that? Like I have this malware sandbox. Can I just throw the sample into that and, and get my answer back? How would you describe the difference between, you know, what you would expect to get from manual versus automated analysis? And when is it appropriate to use which and how often do you find yourself using both of those? Yes. Okay. So first up for the vendor side, there's two parts I want to just really quickly throw out there. And whenever I say real quickly, it's a lie. We all, we all know that. <laughs> a little long-winded here. But you also have teams, for example, that you can send your samples to, and they will literally do the analysis for you. Now they will most likely, I mean, they will use a combination of dynamic and static analysis, including on the dynamic side, using sandboxes, but they will provide a write-up and all that. If you have an agreement with that type of vendor and if the hours required for that type of analysis are free with your contract, which, you know, good luck with free, free, <laughs> you know, using, <laughs> you have X number of free a year, whatever it is, right? Then I recommend for the big stuff, you throw it to them anyway, no matter what. But then taking that and abstracting it more to just general sandboxes or dynamic analysis in its very nature versus like static analysis, Sandboxes very many times can be tricked. And some great examples are Hanseter and Emitet. At first, we're really tricking sandboxes. And I'll get to that in a moment. On the static analysis side, it takes way longer. Like, duh. Okay. A quick static analysis triage, which I can even run down coming up, right? How I'd flow through that and how you can too easily with, you know, just the Flare VM tools and Remnox. But it's not that difficult. And I want to explain how just finding strings or deobfuscating strings with, with the Flare Team's Floss tool, which obviously is in their distribution. You see imports that, for example, uh, PEs, which are just names for .exe files, right? Portable Executable is the official name. You see the, the libraries that it's using and you go, oh, you know, right away, I know it has access to, it's going to import these X number of libraries and within them, these particular functions. And that should really give you a heads up as to its overall capabilities. Right. If it imports Winsock, well, duh. Right? You know, we're probably going to be doing something with networking, right? But anyway, looking at the dynamic analysis conundrum, if you will, when Hanseter and Imitet first came out, they were, and they still do, by the way, um, almost every single one. The downloaders, usually Word docs these days, you know, Maldocs, will loop through a list of five different domains. Right. Oftentimes, the VBA, for example, will build PowerShell the PowerShell will literally just loop through five different domains. It will try to download a sample from the first URL, right, at a particular domain. And if that fails, it goes, oh, that sucks, and then moves on to the next. The idea behind that is that with one piece of, what's the term? Uh, well, I guess I'll just call it one downloader sample, right? With one sample, one compiled sample and, and sent out, even if infrastructure gets burned up to four times, that sample's still going to work as intended, Right. But automated sandboxes at first, they were running into the issue of in the PowerShell code that's often used for this looping, what it does is it goes, okay, can I hit the first URL? Cool. Can I download the file? And is the file over a certain size? In other words, did it actually download and not just give me a 404, right? The code checks length usually of bytes for the stored file. And if it does, it goes, okay, and it breaks out of the loop. Those other four URLs, oftentimes on other four completely different domains, sat dormant and were not identified. So the malware analysis sandboxes were showing you 
network connectivity, right? A section of networking or whatever, and it would have one domain with one URL. But in reality, that sample had five. Now, of course, that was picked up and that's been adjusted such that if there are any breaks to certain types of loops, sandboxes will go, but if we don't break here, what if we just keep going, right? So there are certain ways around that, but that's just one example of, you know, when I was in the soft cert environment, you know, we'd show our analysts, no, 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 go look at the VBA. Like, don't just take that particular, I won't throw out which sandbox it was because it was a commercial one and uh, otherwise it was phenomenal, but it kept just showing us one, you know? So I really think that there's a lot to the static analysis side in very similar, in fact, it's the exact same concept, but it's somehow similar in my mind. Uh, and not the same, but malware may do different things at different times. It may do different things when executing. It may sleep for a gratuitous amount of time as opposed to just X number of minutes. And for that matter, there are a ton, and I mean a ton now, of whether it's via hooking or whatever it is, there are many ways that malware samples and families are avoiding sandboxes specifically. So the anti-analysis techniques have extended to anti-sandbox techniques. So looking at things like the user account under which the sample is being detonated, right? Certain sandboxes were using certain usernames as a default, right? They would Mm -hmm. spin up a VM or environment and say, hey, this is Joe user, right? That's not a real one, but you get the idea. But would always use certain artifacts that would always be the same. So the malware was looking for those and going like, oh, hey, look, this is probably the FireEye sandbox. This is probably CrowdStrike. This is probably BlackBerry. We're not going to, let's just not run right now. And they would just kill itself. And the sandbox would be like, yeah, that, that thing sucks. All it does is go to Disney.com or, you know, whatever. You know, maybe it would quit or maybe it would do something else because it detects that it's in a sandbox. We run into those all the time, all the time. And we cover it in 610. We talk about not just anti-analysis, but as part of the anti-analysis and anti-sandboxing, doing something else completely. Just going like, oh, I'm just a, a pretty little piece of um, software and I do nothing bad. <laughs> you know, like I do yeah. fun stuff and then quitting, you know? So <laughs> yeah, I think static analysis triage is very easy to do. I start with static triage every time first. I want to know what type of file I'm dealing with, right? In general, like what is this? Mm-hmm. And then based on that type, I will take a different triage method, obviously from a PE. Um, if it's a .NET PE, there's a tool called DN Spy. And .NET, when it's compiled down, whether it was written in C-sharp or whatever, it compiles down to what's known as IL or intermediate language. And that is ridiculously easy to convert back to source code. So DN Spy, if you have a tool or a malware or whatever software that's written in .NET, it's most likely obfuscated these days. But you just literally download DN Spy, the release from GitHub or the code, build it yourself, whatever. You drop it on the DNSpy and it decompiles it oftentimes within not even 10, 15 seconds uh, for the most part. And it goes, here you go. Here's the source code. And you go, okay. <laughs> and it just reads through like <laughs> right there. You know, I might find strings. A lot of times threat actors will literally name things like SC for shell code or, you know, like all kinds of, you know, silliness. So that quick initial basic triage, I find that really easy to do. And I can get into how to do it with certain types of files. But once I do that, typically what I'm doing right away is I'm looking for strings. It's usually a string-based game. And so, or identifiers or indicators, and it's usually a string. It usually boils down to a string, an indicator, an IP, a domain, something. And then you Google around, you check virus total, and you are looking for previous write-ups that you may happen to just found it. Oh, look, it's probably this. And then you correlate further based on the analysis they already have done for you. You just go through it and go like, does this match up? Oh, that matches up too. Does that match up? That matches up too. (laughs) You're like, I think it's this, right? But if it starts to get to the point where you're like, all right, I'm going to have to rip this apart, I go for dynamic analysis right away. And dynamic analysis is very, very easy. And a sandbox environment is very, very easy to use. And I think one of the problems with them, and and going further into a difference between why I may prefer one or the other, I love them both, right? But I think that many people use a sandbox and don't really realize what it's telling you, what's critical in the output. For that matter, virus total is the same thing. If you're using virus total intelligence, or excuse me, used to be intelligence, now enterprise, enterprise which yeah. 
is my number one favorite tool. Uh, again, I don't get paid by Virus Total, but oh my goodness, I am in love with Virus Total Enterprise. But anyways, tools like that, any.run, uh, even CrowdStrike's hybrid analysis uh, website, phenomenal website. Those sites will oftentimes show you, hey, here's some behavior. And many people go, okay, it wrote a file and it reached out to this IP. Okay, moving along. But they're just not trained to understand that the mentions of pipes or mutexes are critical and that those can easily be used to correlate potentially what that malware is or to further do research and find related samples, you know, and what have you. So I really, really think that they both go together and you cannot have a proper analysis report, for example, without employing both of them. And hence why in 610, we cover, you know, both of them. Yeah, sure. You mentioned commercial sandboxes and, and some of these open source websites. What do you think of the open source options for malware sandbox as compared to the commercial options that are out there? In, in my experience, I have seen some outstanding results from some of the free options, which is something I'm always mentioning in classes when people are like, well, we don't have a malware sandbox. I'm like, oh, yes, you can do this, right? And then in terms of also the websites, like which ones are your favorite there? So I got a big stupid grin on my face <laughs> when you asked that, I was like, yay. So I love open source sandboxes. The two that come to just float to the top these days are Cuckoo and derivatives of Cuckoo, specifically CAPE, C-A-P-E. So CAPE is a malware configuration and payload extractor, if you will. It's built on Cuckoo, by the way. But CAKE Cake? What? No, hold on. <laughs> cake. I'm just hungry. Also maybe. awesome. Yeah, all right. All the cakes, right? Yeah. I'd like to eat cake while using cape. I got to do that. Take a picture of it and tweet that out. So cape looks for very specific things on top of what the general cuckoo sandbox is looking for. And some of the things it is designed to do is recognize given configurations of very common malware families. So right on the GitHub page for cape, it says, hey, we will dump configurations and payloads of PlugX, Server, TrickBot, Hansitter, URSniff, QuackBot, QBot. All these things, Drydex has decoders, Poison Ivy decoders, all these things that we come across so often. If CAPE is in the mix, CAPE does not only what Cuckoo does and gives you like, hey, it does this, invokes these libraries. I notice these network callouts, all that kind of stuff. But it also may go, hey, hey by the way, this is Imitate. I don't know if you knew that, but... <laughs> <laughs> but here's the configuration that it's using. I decoded it. Here you go. It's already programmed to do all that. It's phenomenal. I can't, oh, I just love it. So people who maybe find it difficult to utilize these tools will often, to not to utilize them. It's very easy to utilize them. What I meant to say is stand them up. And folks who may find it difficult to, for example, stand up a proper sandbox may just simply not have the engineering background. They may just not be, uh, you know, jump into spin up a brand new Ubuntu box or whatever and be like, oh, I'll install this and oh, I'm missing these packages. They, that just may not be their forte. In those cases, a lot of times folks will turn to online-based sandboxes. I have a great level of respect and fear at the same time for online sandboxes. And it's primarily because of operations security or OPSEC. Yeah. So as we know, especially the U.S. government pushed OPSEC so hard during World War II. They had campaigns, loose lips sink ships. You know, uh, sailors would send letters to their families saying, you know, hey, we're going here uh, tomorrow on, on the destroyer I'm on. That would leak out and then the enemy would be waiting for them, right? Like, oopsie, like, shut up. Don't, don't talk about that. Well, OPSEC can be uh, really harmed, if you will, or exposed or just destroyed by using a site like VirusTotal, Hybrid Analysis, um, Any.run. Just a quick note, Any.run is one of my new favorite, favorite sites, but you have to be very careful with it because it is actually run by a group in Russia. I'll leave it at that for your imaginations, but you know, you're literally sending your malware to Russia is what you're doing. But whether you upload it to VirusTotal, Hybrid Analysis, or what, what have you, most of these systems allow folks like me, researchers, to download every single thing that you upload. If you have an enterprise account, and I actually have a researcher account, I have a personal account that gives me access to enterprise via VirusTotal because I reached out to them and I was like, I love you so much. <laughs> you know, can I drop your name everywhere and you give me cool, fun stuff? Like, So even without BlackBerry behind me, I can pop in everything you upload, I can grab. 
forget about me. I'm just a research. I'm just a you know IR guy, right? But threat actors can grab it. And so you have many people who say, well, yeah, I just got this Word document. I don't know if it's bad or not. Let me just upload it to hybrid analysis, which is CrowdStrike's Falcon platform, right? Let me just upload it there and run it there. But now you are literally giving out all of that information. Whatever's contained in that sample is now being essentially spread around or shared with the world. So you have to be very, very careful about how you use them. I highly recommend hashing whatever you're looking at and looking for file hashes first. If you can't find via that, first off, that's a bad sign in general these days. It, yeah. um, it could be a bad sign, especially for something as common as, you know, TrickBot, Cobalt Strike type of stuff, you know, um, and you're like, oh, it's not even on there yet. Like, why not? <laughs> oh, yeah. wait a minute. What do you have? I'm the first person with this malware in the whole yeah, world. Right? You're like, I'm special. <laughs> oh, you're something special. Yeah. Sure <laughs> but, are. You know, also looking at the indicators that you may just see just by looking at strings and looking in VirusTotal or hybrid analysis or just on Google and looking for those things before actually uploading them. There are also systems that you can get. One of them is called Irma. I hope it's still an active development. Irma Malware. It is essentially, um, it aims to be an on-premises virus total. So its whole deal is, hey, you don't want to upload stuff to virus total because duh, right? You don't want to tip off the threat actors who are monitoring virus total that, hey, I sent this to company A. I only sent it to them. It just got uploaded to VirusTotal. Okay, they're looking at it now, right? You're tipping them off. Aside from that, you're spreading it to the world. Aside from, well, there's, let's just focus on those, right? Irma is something, and there are projects very similar to it, that runs on-premises, right? You could put it in your own private cloud. But the idea is that you run it, and it just analyzes stuff based on what you provide it. It doesn't use outside resources, but it can use outside engines, for example, I think I, one off the top of my head, I always remember renewing the license for it was McAfee. So McAfee has a, uh, you literally just give it a license and then it goes, okay, whatever you give me, I will scan via these AV engines. Very similar to how VirusTotal does it, but oftentimes you may have to actually license that engine, although it's usually a decent price for these types of environments. So if you have a team of SOC analysts and you see them keep throwing stuff up on VirusTotal, like immediately be worried. I recommend that all blue teams monitor for traffic to VirusTotal, just VirusTotal.com, hybridanalysis.com, all those submission-based sites. Why are they being used? And if they're being used and the egressing is occurring outside of your SOC cert security teams, like who's doing that? What are they sending there? Because there are many employees who receive documents from joint ventures or clients or whatever, and they go, oh, I wonder if this is bad, and they put it up on VirusTotal. And now whatever was in that document, right? The payroll information, all that stuff. I've seen it all, man. It's all just sitting up there for anyone to go look at. Yep. That's actually exactly what I was just going to say is in, in my experience, I used to have intelligence, enterprise, whatever you call it now, uh, access. And that was the other thing I saw, right? Other than everyone else's viruses, it was everyone else's not viruses. <laughs> and I'm like, so there's a lot of invoices up here and these look pretty real and you probably don't want them here, but here they are. And now the whole world can see your potentially private info. Yeah. Not so great. Yeah. So that's one of the other, any other like big mistakes that people often make with any of these sandboxes or anything like that? I think the biggest mistake that I often see outside of our organization, uh, hopefully not happening where I work, right? Yeah, just throwing it out there. Hopefully we're not doing it. <laughs> is, is OPSEC. It's just destroying OPSEC. Um, sharing things out they shouldn't be sharing. Asking questions they shouldn't be asking about different malware samples and things of that nature. If you have something that you know is public, you know, I've said imitate, what, 20 times on this call already, right? Uh, this mm-hmm. podcast. Imitate, 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 right? If you get imitate, and you're like, well, I'll just share it with the world. Even Imitet can have specific campaign information associated with it and campaign IDs are, are for sure, I can guarantee you, are monitored by the threat actors behind them. You have to be careful about, about everything. Yep. Um, beyond that, I would say that assumptions and reliance on those assumptions is a huge problem in malware analysis. So when you have a write-up, for example, and you go, oh, what I have looks, oh, it looks just like this, you know, based on two paragraphs. And you go, okay, this is what this is the threat. This is what we have. And then you do stuff like, okay, well, this article mentions that this does click fraud, that it does data exfil, but only over FTP and so on and so forth. And then you build that into your, your threat hunting, into your profile, into your whatever incident write-up. 
without verification of some sort, you know, actual analysis yourself and ensuring and correlating that what you're finding online from, you know, Joe Schmo, heck, you may find a blog article I wrote, right? Oh, hey, I found this malware. And you're like, oh, it's the same thing that Ryan found. <laughs> you're like, no, yours may be, you know, just kind of similar, but it's not the same. So I see that. I see that a lot. You have to be very, very sure that everything kind of lines up. And, uh, you know, recently when we ran into the divergent malware a day or two ago with my coworker, you know, at first I was like, that's it. And I was like, okay, hold on, slow down, (laughs) slow down, cowboy. Let's verify that's it. And then he eventually, you know, sent me some screenshots. He's like, no, no, that's it. Like literally the entire article we were reading, you know, item for item, file for file, everything he was finding, that was the, the threat. But you have to be very careful not to make assumptions. And you also have to be very careful that, when you're using tools like just a, a standard, you know, you have a standard .exe, a PE file, and you drop it onto um, a tool like PE Studio, which is one of my favorite tools for PE analysis. In fact, it's one of my top three that uh, you don't take for granted the fact that malware these days, its aim is to hide itself, to obfuscate itself. Uh, many times you'll run across packed malware and packed malware will not show you a fully built import address table. So, which, by the way, references the libraries and often the functions specific to those libraries that are pulled in during runtime. If you see a list of imports and you say, oh, this malware uses these 15 imports, moving on. Whoa, be very careful because most malware these days will dynamically load certain libraries to do things it doesn't want you to be able to see during static analysis. So you just have to be very careful that whatever information you get, that you run that to ground. And again, a combination of dynamic analysis, CAPE is awesome, or static analysis is very important. And I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention that as far as dynamic analysis is concerned, I highly recommend that once folks have a Windows working VM, you grab Process Monitor, which is just a standard, what are they, system internals? Yeah, system internals. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, so procmon.exe, right, Process Monitor. When you run Process Monitor and then you execute the malware, Process Monitor is monitoring everything, not everything, but most of the things, all the library calls, all the file writes, all the registry reads and writes and all this fun stuff that it's doing. You can actually allow it to run for a couple minutes, stop the execution. And if you export the results by literally going to, I think it's file save as or file export, one of the two, and you choose to save it as a CSV, there's a tool called ProcDot. So like process, but dot, D-O-T. And that is provided by the Australian CERT, C-E-R-T dot A-U. Proc dot, you can load the procmon CSV file, and then it churns through it for a couple minutes. You then tell it which executable or process was actually the malware. You say like, this kicked off all the bad stuff, focus on this. And then proc dot goes, okay, and it builds you this beautiful graph. And it's got these cute little color-coded, I'm colorblind, so the color-coding, I'm like, I'm sure it's useful. (laughs) But, you know, it has all these shapes, certain shapes and sizes and colors for like registry entries or files. And you can literally even click play and watch it like a movie. And it's like the process starts and then it opens this reg key and then it writes this reg value and then it writes a file to this location. And then it moves itself to uh, the app data directory and it makes a new task. And and, like, you're literally just scrolling through a graph going, oh, okay, (laughs) like, that's cool. So procmon plus proc dot is a very simple, very simple dynamic analysis methodology that anyone can, can implement with malware. Again, you have to be very careful for the VM that you set up, that it's in an environment that is conducive to literally executing the malware. So if you have networking enabled in that VM, like, do you really want that enabled, right? If you have right. even just drag and drop enabled between the VM and your host, like, should that be enabled while you're running the rants or... <laughs> While you're running the malware, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Anywho, I just wanted to throw that out there because that is such a great combination and easy to get fun information. So that's a, a, we have a ton of awesome tools in the list. Uh, I'm sure all the listeners are like trying to furiously write stuff down. I am going to make sure all of the stuff we've mentioned gets into the show notes. Thank you for bringing up all that awesome stuff. Hopefully that gets everyone set off on the right path. Before we wrap up the episode for today, final thoughts. If you were to look into the crystal ball going forward for maybe the next year to three years, is there any particular direction you think malware is going to potentially go and and what kind of threats we might face in the future? I'm actually really worried because I see it 
continuing on the path that it's taking now, and that is malware as a service. Mm -hmm. Um, ransomware as a service or RAS, the human operated ransomware that I referred to earlier and that I've been so obsessed with, you know, for the past couple of months is a great example of allowing folks who are not necessarily, I I shouldn't say maybe technical enough, but I kind of mean that maybe don't have the wherewithal, the know-how, or even just the time to design a threat to get in, but they're able to just lease it from someone else. I mean, that's how Imitet, that's how uh, TrickBot, that's how those are designed and how they work. They all have campaign IDs associated. If I want a particular thing or I want to break into a particular company or I want my, my click fraud on a certain number of machines, I can go to you know the dark web. I just connect to Tor, right? Whatever. And go to some site, some forum and say, hey, um, here's the thing. I need click fraud against this domain from this country. Right? I can be very, very specific. Right? Not me. I mean, I'm not going to do it. I don't think I'm going to do it. <laughs> and, and it will get done. And it's just that easy. I'm worried that that model is going to continue to grow. So what we're going to see more and more and more are families very similar to TrickBot and Imitet. And they are going to be used more and more for the initial infection vector. And we're seeing that all the time. Now, we're also going to continue to see CVs for network appliances and external devices, VPN-based Things, for example, the one was fairly big over the past uh, couple CVEs. Um, I actually love the company, so I won't say their name, but we all know who they are. So we're going to see a lot of ease of getting into environments, but made even easier by the fact that it's just like, what's the group that uses uh, Anonymous? A lot of quote unquote skitties or script kitties are in Anonymous. However, at the same time, there are some legitimate folks in that group. But when they were taking down so many sites via DDoS, much of it was just low orbit ion cannon, right? They were literally just saying, hey, grab this tool, put this IP in or host name and, and hit enter for us, right? That type of design is what we're seeing more and more with malware and entry vectors. And what I see continuing to also be a problem and exacerbating the problem is the fact that while those malware families are being sold as services, and we're going to see more and more and much more money being made from that, we're also going to continue to see the proliferation of open source software for quote-unquote pen testers or for researchers or things of that nature. Everyone is scrambling to come up with new ideas, and it has enabled a new world for the blue team, the red team, but also the black hats. Um, I, I can't recall the last time I worked a large case, you know, on our professional services team and didn't see literally like Cobalt Strike, a, a cracked version oftentimes. Cobalt Strike, you know, Mudge's tool and everyone loves and respects that tool. Uh, Metasploit, often we see Metasploit reversed with handlers and uh, Cobalt Strike beacons and we see all the PowerShell-based stuff. We see PowerShell Empire to this day, even though it's officially been retired on GitHub, it's still being used. All these tools, as they come out more and more and more, it's just going to open up more and more and more avenues for the threat actors for once they get into an environment. At this point, I do not believe that there's any way to prevent any threat actor from getting in. You're not going to prevent them from getting in. If they want to get in, they're going to get in. I don't care. They're going to have to stick to it. They're going to get in. Once they're inside at this point, they're going to get wherever they want. It's not difficult. Tools like Bloodhound. Oh, Bloodhound is awesome. As, as a blue teamer and understanding defense issues and things like that. And of course, red teams go you know, crazy for it. Well, why? Because it's too good, <laughs> right? <laughs> so we're going to see this malware as a service model. We're going to see a lot of people making money because of it, and it's going to continue to grow. It's going to end up being considered uh, national industries at some point. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, in some places it already is, I guess. Maybe not reported as such, but you know. And we're going to keep seeing all these folks pushing out these awesome tools that can be used for good, but are often being used for bad. All right. Well, very interesting. Thank you very much, Ryan, for uh, this amazing set of information, tools, and all that good stuff. Where can we follow you online to keep up to date with all the stuff you're doing? And and is there anything else you want to shout out while you uh, have a moment here? Yeah, my first shout out to the BlackBerry Security Services team. We have a consultancy that takes on all kinds of cases. I have to push my work because I was with a very, very large corporation, one of the biggest in the world for seven years. And moving into consulting and being around the former silence, you know, as we came from team, 
I couldn't be more in love. Uh, so absolutely love the guys that I work with. Just shout out to them. They're so supportive management. I love it. I, my whole life changed. I, I love it. Awesome. For me personally, I train, you know, forensic 610. So if you want to actually take the course, find one with me. We, we could chat uh, to make crack jokes throughout class all day long. You know, I am now the lead organizer for CactusCon. So CactusCon is Arizona's premier hacker and security conference. <laughs> we are coming up on CactusCon number nine, which will be February 6th and 7th. Potentially a three-day. We're, we're looking into that. So come check us out. And also, I have a website. It's incidentresponse.training. It is literally HTML 0.1. It is horrible. And it's basically just a couple links. And the links, if you go there, you'll find all my other stuff, all my stuff. So I have some Pluralsight courses. If you already have a Pluralsight membership, and I'm not trying to push the buy my courses. No, if you have a membership, then go watch them. Check them out. Like, I think they're really good, <laughs> right? On GitHub, I'd love for folks listening to this particular podcast to check out my GitHub page, which is just rj-chap. Typically, I go by rj underscore chap. But on my GitHub page, I have various workshops. I have an exploit kit workshop. I have the carrier file workshop. And I have two different network forensics workshops. They're PDF files along with associated data that you have to pay attention to. And I designed each of them when I originally presented them. So I'm going back to like B-Sides Las Vegas 2015 on step-by-step-by-step instructions. So it literally says, grab this file from you know, here in GitHub and then follow these directions. If you want to understand exploit kits, I have a workshop there for you. I love putting that material out, but I spend so much time building them that when you give me opportunities like this, I'm like, just go look at them. Like they're still super useful. So go check those things out. And then I primarily use Twitter. I like to use Twitter a lot. So I keep up with the InfoSec community there. So I'm RJ underscore chap on Twitter. Um, I have some stuff on YouTube. I started doing some Twitch streaming, but it's all on YouTube. All this is linked on instantresponse.training. So I will some at some point enable at least WordPress or something silly. And so right now it's just a couple links, literally on a white background. But go check that out. Yeah. Before we sign out, I just want to say thank you so much for, for having me here. You know, I love to run my mouth, but I also absolutely love the blue team. You come across malware and artifacts all day long. You know, you see a mutex or a pipe that was created. Google it. Go check virus total. Go, you know, like, what is that? It can tell you something that you didn't know by just looking at that. So, you know, anyone who wants to reach out on a more personal level, I'm completely game to do that. I love discussing malware and blue team stuff in general. So, yeah, that's my little spiel. Awesome. Well, thank you for all the links, all the information. And I will be sure to get all of this in the show notes for everyone. I know we had a ton of resources mentioned here. So, yeah, thank you for joining me on the Blueprint Podcast. And we will keep watch on all the awesome stuff you're doing going into the future. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Have a good one. Hey, Blue Teamers, I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Blueprint. If you've got a second and want to help support the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It would be really, really meaningful to us. And if you have any ideas or suggestions, I would love to hear them. Your reviews are going to be one of the best ways to help others find this podcast. So anything you could do would be a big help. As always, thank you for listening. You can connect to me on social at SecHub, S-E-C-H-U-B-B on Twitter or on LinkedIn. So until next time, thank you for listening to the Blueprint Podcast.